Our sermon, our sermon text for today is from First and Second Corinthians, First Corinthians fifteen one through eight. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Second Corinthians twelve nine through 10 But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians thirteen five through 6 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. This is the word of the Lord. joy to get to worship with you two times in three days. Our King is worthy of worship every day. Let's bow our heads before his throne and ask him to be present with us. God, in your wisdom, you have chosen through the foolishness of preaching to proclaim the glory of our God. I don't know how that's possible. Apart from your spirit, working through me to make your truth known and working in our ears to make your truth heard and working in our hearts to make your truth adored. In your manifold wisdom, God, you have chosen for the weakness of a local church to hold up the beautiful diamond of the gospel. I don't know how we can do that, God, unless your spirit strengthens us, unless your spirit gives wisdom to our minds, unless you, God, work in our hearts to satisfy our souls. So I pray, God, through these words from the apostle Paul, inspired by your spirit, that we would be strengthened to stand until that glorious day when we rise with Jesus, and reign over all the earth, making glorious his name throughout. Amen. I would like to let you all in on a little secret this morning. Consider it a late Christmas gift. By showing up to church to the day after Christmas, you get to have some insider knowledge on how the church works. So congratulations. You may have already had some suspicions, but 
I'm going to share with you a little bit of detail that might clear up a few rumors that you may have heard or, or some preconceived ideas you already had. Here it is. The church is full of hypocrites. Yes, it's true. And there's even more. At some point, if you hang around with us long enough, the church is probably going to hurt you. And it gets even worse. The pastors are really weak and unimpressive and will probably disappoint you at some point. (sighs) That's our sales pitch. And the reality is that these things are true of every single church. It's not much of a secret. It's actually by design. So many people are out looking for the perfect church that will meet their needs just right. Many have been hurt by the church and are afraid to open themselves up to be vulnerable to people again. Or, compared to TED Talks and campaign speeches, some pastors are just downright boring, uninspiring. There's a lot more interesting things you could probably be doing with your time and money than giving it all to this group of people. Now, we might not actually say things like that, but that's how many people relate to the church. We say we believe the gospel, but we don't engage in the very plan that God has designed for us to live out the gospel. See, our behavior is not separate from our theology. What we do, whether we think about it or not, flows directly out of what we believe. How we connect to a church reveals what we believe about the gospel. In these two letters to the Corinthians, we're going to see that the local church is the context for displaying the power of Christ and the love of the Spirit in your life. So as we give an overview of these two books, what you'll notice pretty quickly is that these This church is a messed up church. Not just this one, but the Corinthians. The Corinthians are messed up. They fight, uh, they fight with each other. They affirm sin in one another. They're selfish. They're divided. They're proud. In all these ways, they're revealing that they are misunderstanding and failing to apply the gospel to their lives. Today, everyone says they want to be part of a New Testament, first century church. Just want to do what the Bible says, right? Well, here in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is a New Testament, first century church. And they are messed up and confused and failing in many ways. See, we need to understand that the gospel doesn't just come in and immediately fix everything in our lives. But it forgives us for the parts that we have failed and empowers us to partner with other believers to make that gospel known together. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that it's necessary for there to be problems because it provides the opportunity for the gospel to mature in us. It provides the circumstances for us to grow in its forgiveness and its love. This is what Paul's letters to the Corinthians are all about. He's exhorting them to mature and endure together in the gospel. 
mature and endure together in the gospel. He wants them to see all of the problems they are facing, all of the difficulty is an opportunity to apply the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out 11 problems that this church is having and goes through every one of them showing how the gospel applies to those issues. It calls them to unity and purity, maturing in the gospel. And then as time went on, Paul moved away and went to plant other churches, but he kept hearing that they were struggling again with issues, but this time with suffering and wondering what's the role of weakness in the church. So he writes another letter to them to remind them in second Corinthians that the gospel calls them to rejoice in weakness together enduring in the gospel. So to help them mature and endure in the gospel, Paul needs to carefully define what the gospel is. We use that word all the time. I've probably said it about two dozen times already, but what is the gospel? Can any of you quickly, concisely, clearly explain to a coworker, what is the gospel? Well, to help you do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 through 8. Joe already read them for us, but the word of God is more powerful than my word, so let's read them again. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. To me, Paul. So this statement is coming at the end of Paul's letter to the first Corinthians. One more chapter wrapping things up after this. But this is the climax of his entire book. Focusing his whole argument on what Jesus accomplished for us in the gospel. He had been arguing since the very beginning of the letter, from the first chapter all the way through this one, what that the gospel must be central to solving every issue in their lives. And in case they don't understand what he's been saying the whole time, he just stops to clarify. This is what I want you to know. Verses 1 and 2. I'm going to remind you of the gospel. It's the only message that Paul has been proclaiming. It's the only message they've heard from him. It's the only message that can bring them an identity together. It's the only foundation for their complete salvation. So Paul wants to be crystal clear about what the gospel is. In verse 3, he emphasizes, I didn't change this message for each church I planted or different cities, depending on the circumstances, to try to appeal to different audiences. What I received from Jesus, I gave to you. No changes. This is it. So what is it that he says is the gospel? Well, you can see in our text the basic structure of the gospel, finding the word that. 
Look for the word that in verses 3, 4, and 5. Here's the outline. Halfway through verse 3, verse 3b, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then verse 4, right at the beginning, that he was buried. Then halfway through, verse 4b, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And verse 5, that he appeared. And then a bunch of appearances. So the outline here is suggesting that there's two primary aspects of the gospel. The basic idea can be broken down into two parts with two supporting pieces for each of those. So every time I share the gospel with someone, or every time I ask one of you, tell me what the gospel is. I am looking to make sure this is said. Two parts. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. My community group knows this. I say it all the time. What's the gospel? Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus died. Jesus rose. That's what we say over and over. So you can see that here, that these are the primary aspects of his gospel message with the the phrase he uses, in accordance with the scriptures. They call out, this is the main message of the whole Bible. Jesus died. Jesus rose. You could call these the biblical proof of the gospel. The whole Bible has been laying this foundation and pointing people forward to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And then Paul follows up these two scriptural proofs with historical proof. Proof that he died is that he was buried. You can ask anyone. Check with the Romans. They're really good at killing people on crosses and keeping them in tombs. Everyone knows that Jesus was crucified and he was put in which tomb he was put in. That's just not controversial. What's scandalous is to say that he rose from the dead. You got to be kidding me, Paul. But again, he follows it up with historical eyewitness proofs. Hundreds of people saw him, touched him, ate with him, spoke with him. You can check the story of all of them and verify their stories against one another. Ask the disciples. Ask the women who visited the tomb. Ask everyone in Jerusalem who is all up in arms about this thing. Ask Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, religious rulers who know these things. This isn't some well-coordinated conspiracy. These people's lives were turned upside down, utterly transformed by this event, Jesus coming out of a tomb full of strength and life. They believed it so much. They were so convinced that Jesus' resurrection guaranteed their resurrection that they were willing to die to protect and proclaim this message. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous King, the Holy Son of God, became one of us, a humble servant, an ordinary man. And he died on a cross as a criminal to pay for the sins of those who trust him. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering death, ascended into the throne in heaven over all the earth, promising that those who trust in him too would rise one day to reign with him. What a message worth dying for. 
This isn't just a message about what will happen someday after you die. It's a message that transforms how you live today. This is what Paul's entire letter is about. He says in chapter 1, verse 23, right at the beginning, we preach Christ crucified. These are the words that always come out of our mouth. This is the message that we talk about all the time. He clarifies in chapter 2, verse 2, we decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is all Paul wants to be known for. It's the only message he has for the Corinthians in all of life's problems. You want to talk about marriage, politics, health, food, sex, relationships, education, vocation? The gospel speaks to all of it. The Corinthian church needs to mature by being unified and purified in that gospel, in the death and resurrection of Jesus So throughout the book, he's explaining how the death and resurrection applies to their divisions and their impurities. And it reveals that they must not be understanding the gospel if they're behaving this way. Now's your chance to apply the gospel. Because the Corinthians have looked more like the culture all around them than they have the people of God. They were unwittingly expressing all kinds of theologies about individualism and freedom and sex and forgiveness, marriage, food, authority, submission. All of these things were showing that they were believing less gospel and more the messages of the culture. They're dividing over who their favorite Bible teacher is when all of them are pointing to Jesus and his death and resurrection. They draw boundaries. You can come in and stay with us, but you can't be with us. That have nothing to do with repentance and faith in the gospel. Some people are using their freedom in Christ just for their own gain, not to help lift up brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ himself did. They take each other to worldly courts to settle ordinary disputes when they themselves have the wisdom of God given to them in the gospel. They argued over whose spiritual gifts were most important. They didn't strive to come to the same table in communion and show equality in the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul's message is that Jesus died and rose from the dead to make them one. Every single person in the church is important. We all grow together as a family. We're all built up together as a temple of God's spirit. We are all the unified body of Jesus Christ himself. You don't get to pick and choose which people you want to associate with. Oh, he's really uncomfortable to talk to. Ah, the things he does, they just, I don't, I just can't stand to be around him. Too bad Jesus died and redeemed the both of you to put you together in the same family. No matter how much it frustrates you or annoys you or threatens your reputation in the world, you're to pull each other close and build each other up with the gospel. But this unity isn't just so we can all have some warm, fuzzy feelings together when we hang out. The gospel also calls us to purity. The Corinthians had all kinds of messed up ideas about what forgiveness was. Occasionally, when I'm sharing the gospel with people, they, they like to, they'll push back against 
the call to holiness in Christ by saying, only God can judge me. Like that, like that's an encouraging thing. Or, you know, it's okay if I do that because God will forgive me. He's really forgiving God. That is a false gospel. That's not what Paul's gospel is. The Corinthians had become prideful like that in their forgiveness to the point of embracing and affirming impurity. They don't care about holiness. They celebrated their wonderful patience. Their, the great grace they have to welcome in a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. Uh, what? Are you kidding me? They joined their non-Christian neighbors in going to the brothel and sleeping with prostitutes. They went to the pagan temples and joined in their worship festivals and eating all the, the sacrifices along with the pagans. Telling everyone, we're free in Christ, it doesn't matter what we do. They just threw off every bit of restraint and image of respectability to the point where the world around them is looking at them going, wow, Christians, they just, their message just means you don't have to have any morality. Paul says, no, cast that impurity out among, from among you. The death and resurrection of Christ doesn't just forgive you, but it gives you God's spirit to make you clean, to enable you to live a holy life. And you need the spirit in one another to call you out of your idolatry, to keep you away from your idolatry, to call you out of sinful selfishness. Jesus bought you with his blood. What you do with your body, with your life matters. It communicates to a world what you believe. If you do what the world does, if you respond to news the way the world does, then you're believing the world's messages. But if you believe the gospel, it will drive you to unity and purity together with a local church, no matter the cost, in order to be purified together in the death and resurrection of Christ. This is vital. Paul says it is eternally important that you understand this gospel and you unify and mature together with a local body because the Christian life will only get more and more difficult. You're going to need other gospel-centered people in your life to help you get through it. So this is the focus of 2 Corinthians where Paul tells us to be people enduring in the gospel. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with me, verses 9 and 10. Again, near the end of his letter. Verses 9 and 10. He, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Maybe it would be helpful to just back up a little bit. Usually I give context, historical context near the beginning. But thinking about the city of Corinth a bit will help us appreciate what Paul is addressing in this letter. The city of Corinth was established by Caesar as a brand new city, an important trade city, very strategically located geographically. 
And he populated it with former slaves who were set free and he gave them all of this land. He gave them a new home, gave them money to build this city so that it would become an important cultural center. And the people took pride in that and they did just that. Outside of the city of Rome itself, Corinth was one of the most important cities in the empire. Its culture was very much like a combination of New York City and Los Angeles and mixing a little Vegas in there as well. These former slaves had just embraced the good life. And they built this city into an economic and political and entertainment cultural powerhouse. They had much to be proud of for what they accomplished out of their nothingness. And many of the first converts to Christ in this city were people who were influential in the city's success. Corinth had become a great place of learning and achievement. So the the cultural mindset was that if you had great skill, eloquent persuasion, gritty determination, and a good message, you could make a name for yourself and become prosperous and powerful. And the Corinthian church... Yeah, they still kind of believed a lot of that. The Corinthians were greatly affected by this culture of expertise. Build yourself into something important. And Paul had to remind them again of the reality of the gospel. Remember, the message of the gospel... Death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus became weak to make you strong. Jesus became poor to make you rich. Jesus bore your sins to make you righteous. If you believe the gospel, if you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, if you have Christ's spirit in you, then he has made you his servant To take on that very identity, this self-denying, cross-bearing way of life. You now are called to become weak in order to make your brothers and sisters in Christ strong. This is what Paul's message is in this book of 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians are kind of actually getting sick of Paul, believe it or not. I mean, can you imagine Paul coming here? We'd be like, wow, all the wisdom! The Corinthians were getting sick of Paul. They're like, well, to be honest, when I listen to him, he's, he's a little boring to follow along with. And, and we kind of whisper behind his back, he's kind of ugly. He doesn't look so good. You know, I think he's kind of sickly too. I don't think he even has the power to overwhelm a puppy. This guy's faced a lot of opposition. He's experienced much suffering. In the context of Corinth... These are markers of a bad teacher, of a poor message. And all kinds of people are coming in saying, you're going to follow that guy? Are you serious? He is pathetic. So they had doubts. Maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe they should find a different teacher or a better message. But Paul reminds them, this is the gospel. Christ purchased them so their service could show off his glory. Christ died and rose for them. From the dead for them so their poverty could show off his riches. Christ became sin for them so that his righteousness would show up in their lives. Jesus redeemed them so their weakness would reveal his strength. Christ 
doesn't leave his people vulnerable. He strengthens them, enriches them, enables them by his spirit-filled body. His power is made perfect in their weakness. So Paul's eager to boast, he says, in his own weakness, because then he gets to see a far greater glory and a much better strength put on display. This is like the lesson Molly and I have had to learn over the last several years of our lives. We often wrestle with, God, are you calling us to do this thing? Are you sure? Because our family's going to think we're weird. And I can think of a few people that aren't Christians who are going to think that's stupid. And we don't have enough money to do that. And we're tired and exhausted. I don't know how we're going to accomplish that. And he says, trust me. And so kind of a theme in our home over the last few years has become, let's just take front row seats to God showing off his power. And boy, has he kept his promises. It doesn't mean that everything has always gone the way we wanted. You know that's not true. It doesn't mean that it's easy or that we're going to become prosperous, safe, comfortable in this life. We're not promised these things until eternity in our resurrection. But these promises do mean that his love will be nearer. His strength will be sufficient. His grace will be comforting. And his spirit-filled church will be there to help us endure until that resurrection. And so we join Paul saying, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Because I've become much more content being weak and seeing his strength in my life. We're happy to be weak because God's strength is much better for us anyway. We're happy to be poor because his spirit pours out his riches among us anyway. We're content even with death because we know that we're going to rise from the dead one day. This is why getting the gospel right is so important. We cannot compromise on a single detail of it. We must know accurately who Jesus is and what he has done for us because our peace, our comfort, our strength, our joy are eternally dependent upon it. And even today, we need to embrace the reality of the gospel as our own identity. In this life, if you are in Christ, you are called to imitate him in his servanthood, in his weakness, his poverty, even in his death, trusting that the Spirit will raise you as he raised the Lord Jesus. This is the way that God has designed for us to mature and endure together in the gospel through a local church. The gospel has always been about building a pure, unified people together to show off the glory of our mighty God. The local church, with all of our disagreements and divisions and difficulties and differences, is the place where we act out the gospel. It's forgiveness. We mature in gospel endurance. And this is the story of the whole Bible. And now it's your story too. If, Paul says, he said it in 1 Corinthians 15, if indeed you believe, and now he says, 
in 2 Corinthians 13, if you pass the test, if you truly believe the gospel. So let's look at that final text in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. One of Paul's final exhortations, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Isn't it just, I just, this pops into my mind. We've been marveling the last month about Jesus, the son of God, the eternal creator of the universe becoming a baby. You know what else is a miracle? That same God living in you. That's what his death and resurrection accomplished. If you trust him. Paul says this power, this comfort, this confidence, these promises of a resurrection, this presence of his spirit is yours. If, if you repent, turn away from yourself, surrender your life to King Jesus and believe Believe that he died on a cross to take away your sins. Believe that he really did come out of a tomb after three days to set you on a spirit-led path to eternal life. Examine yourself. Start it right now. Go home. Spend some time in prayer and think about these things this week. Think about if you believe this gospel, if Christ is in you. Here's a few questions To take home. To think about this. To wrestle with God. How much are you influenced by the culture around you? It's easy for us to look at the Corinthians and go, whoa, they were messed up. They probably look at us and think, whoa, they're messed up. How much does the messaging, the promises, the comforts, the threats of this world influence your thinking? Whether it's from... Locally, Mayo Clinic or our city council or Fox News or CNN or President Trump or President Biden, whatever American dream you have, how much does that influence you more than the death and resurrection of Jesus to purify and unify a church? Are you unified with the church? Do you offer regularly your gifts, your skills, your talents, your interests in service to the body? Are you generous to the church in a way that makes you so uncomfortable in order to offer comfort to those who are weak? Do you avoid people in the church who make you uncomfortable? Or do you draw near to them to strengthen them? Are you here just for your own benefit? Are you happy to be weak, poor, Oppressed even in order that Christ's promises in the gospel look more glorious through your life? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus actually lived and died and rose from the dead to make you into a brand new person by your own death and resurrection? That is the message that must inform our decisions. That is the message that inspires our dreams. That's the message that makes us look foolish to the world. But it's the only message that guarantees our eternal joy. Our message is not simply love your neighbor 
or do unto the others as you would have them do to you. Those are vital parts of who we become in Christ, but they are not the central message of who we are as individuals who shapes our identity as a church family. Our identity is people who believe the death and resurrection of Christ and have embraced our own death and resurrection in him through self-denial, trusting in the promise of eternal life. And in that, we become together a people maturing and enduring in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this simple message, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead to save sinners like us, is all we need for a great marriage, to raise our children, to be faithful employees, to know how to respond to politics and culture, to be encouraged in our lives. God, remind us over and over and over of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Draw us closer into one another that this would be our greatest joy, our only hope, and it would glorify the name of King Jesus through our weakness. Amen.